Taiwan. We're talking about it. Maggie Lewis is a professor at Seton Hall Law School, and Lev Nachman is a PhD student at UC Irvine. So I hear you guys went out to dinner with 25 people last night? We definitely had a full crew. We definitely try to take advantage of the fact that we're able to go out without having to have a mask on close to other people. Uh, yeah, just stop. Basis, okay, just stop. 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 Be. We can't. It's too painful. I hear, though, that there was some, like, evil pilot from Australia. Like, what, what's the deal with the new outbreak you guys have? That was actually different. There was a uh, a pilot. I think he was actually from, from New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yes. So I don't want to make the Australians yeah, feel like they're it. taking responsibility <laughs> for what people from New Zealand are doing. He did not follow the rules, which are already modified for uh, pilots. And, uh, and in fact, it seems there was someone he very much wanted to uh, visit other than his uh, spouse uh, while here. So that happened in December. That was a very uh, limited cluster. But then more recently, there was another very small cluster in, in Taoyuan. So I think that in total, they've had 12 or 14 people uh, catch COVID from that cluster. But it really seems like it's already under control. Yeah, I spread. think there's been 12 in my like floor of my apartment building. But anyways, um, let's kick us off with some Biden transition talk. What is the new administration looking to do with respect to the U.S.-Taiwan relationship? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of action in the last few weeks. It, it feels like it was longer than just what, two weeks ago that we had um, the uh, declaring null and void um, by the Trump administration of contact uh, policies that have been in place for a long time. Uh, and, and what we're seeing so far, again, we're all of, what, nine days into the Biden administration, is uh, more continuity than change with respect to Taiwan policy. We had, uh, most importantly, this statement that was released uh, in response to the increase in air traffic in the Taiwan Strait by PLA jets, in which the United States made clear that the commitment to Taiwan was, quote, rock solid. And also, uh, referring back to the Taiwan relationship, Act, the three communiques, six assurances, which reiterated the basis of the one China policy and uh, made clear that there wasn't going to be any major shift, at, at least yeah. right now. And I think what really matters there is that there was so much concern leading up to Biden that there was going to be these fundamental changes of returning to an Obama era uh, U.S.-Taiwan relation in which the U.S. is much more passive uh, and in which we kind of move away from the direction that the Trump administration had pushed the U.S.-Taiwan relation. Um, and, you know, even though, you know, like Maggie said, we're only nine days in, but at the very least, it feels like there has been a big sigh of relief, both in the U.S. and in Taiwan, when you see statements like this uh, and support from the Biden administration early on, um, including things like, you know, inviting uh, Xiao Kim, the de facto ambassador to Biden's inauguration. Uh, you know, these are signs that, you know, it's early, but it seems positive. Yeah, so it's interesting because the sort of general dynamic of the Trump administration was the president unable to care less about the future of Taiwan, while various staffers at different levels wanting to do things um, much further, uh, go much further in, uh, you know, making explicit the commitment that 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 the U.S. has to Taiwanese to Taiwanese sovereignty and the, I guess the you know there was a plenty of coverage in Taiwanese media about how you know Biden is going to lead to the end of the world, which is interesting because like I you know I feel more comfortable trusting him in a time of crisis than I would necessarily with um, with Trump. So um, to see the sort of like uh, roiling water settling down a little bit, at least within the sort of Taiwanese media ecosystem, is a really interesting thing to follow. Yeah, you know, the presidential election was stressful watching it here because there was just this absolute uh, unabashed bias towards Trump. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, I, I, I by no means judge, uh, you know, Taiwanese voters who say positive things about Trump or see Trump in a positive light. Uh, his administration did things that were beneficial to Taiwan. And, you know, Taiwan, who exists in this kind of constant existential uh, crisis of fearing invasion all the time, uh, you know, the logic of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend uh, appeals to people here. I disagree with that logic, and I think it's pretty faulty. Um, but, you know, in like, like Maggie said, when you have fighter jets flying over on a daily basis, it makes, you know, some of Trump's uh, policies seem much more appealing. And it's not that um, people were opposed to someone else. It's more just fear of losing the stronger relationship that the U.S. had built up with Taiwan. So, you know, when I, when I say like the collective sigh really happened, it really felt, especially the day that Xiaobi Kim was at Biden's inauguration, so many of my friends here who are adamant Trump supporters suddenly changed their tone. And now you have people who were like, oh, the Biden's going to be the end of Taiwan. Uh, even, even you know, some of these pages that share just tons of disinformation about the U.S. election actually said nice things about Biden saying, oh, well, maybe we could give this guy a chance. This is actually OK. So so that, you know, it's it's good. You know, I, I one, one one commentator said that, you know, they're hopeful that, you know, months from now, uh, no one's going to be talking about whether or not we can trust Biden and people are just going to naturally trust Biden, which I, I think and hope is going to be true. To what extent does it matter that the Taiwanese electorate feels confidence in a U.S. president? Like how would losing that confidence end up impacting the way politicians think? Um, and I guess the way that, you know, maybe the the the, the mainland thinks about this issue. Last year in 2000, uh, the end of 2019, uh, uh, Pew put out their very first survey uh, that they had done in Taiwan that asked Taiwanese people how they feel about the U.S. relationship and about the China relationship. And uh, unsurprisingly, people in Taiwan feel very positive about the U.S.-Taiwan relationship and feel much more critical about the Taiwan-China relationship. Part of my initial concern with uh, kind of how uh, clear support was for Trump in Taiwan was, you know, my line of thinking was, what's this going to do with those numbers that we just you know, got from Pew that said that people feel really confident and comfortable with the U.S.-Taiwan relationship if they don't have faith in the future U.S. president. Um, and, uh, you know, li like uh, most countries that are democracies, uh, you know, people that are elected have to listen and respond to their constituencies here. It's in Taiwan's best interest to stay bipartisan and to be supportive of both parties. Um, and there is concern that, uh, you know, if the Taiwanese voters see one politician or at least one party as much more negative for Taiwan, that that might actually have a negative impact on the future of U.S.-Taiwan relations. Now, thankfully, again, it seems like that's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, I, I know a lot of Taiwanese feel very helpless in this situation because, you know, they have no say in who the U.S. president is. But at the same time, you know, there are things that I think uh, Taiwanese politicians can do to help, um, you know, maintain relations with both, with both parties, build relationships with both parties. Um, you know, the, 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 again, the de facto ambassador Xiaobin Kim is really wonderful in, in how much she's been trying to create more space for Taiwan and D.C., uh, take meetings with politicians. I'm really hopeful that, you know, in the next four years that she's going to be meeting with uh, as many Democrats as she uh, has been meeting with Republicans during the Trump administration. Um, you know, Xiao in particular, being uh, Taiwanese-American, speaks, you know, perfect English and Mandarin. Um, so she's kind of a perfect ambassador for Taiwan yeah. at the time. It's interesting um, kind of comparing 
this experience to the Israeli one um, in that, you know, the vast majority of the, you know, BB was way louder um, about his support for Trump, both. Um, I mean, he did this. He did this even for Mitt Romney in 2012, um, but in 2016 and in 2020 as well. Uh, and the Taiwanese leadership, even though you, you see um, these newspaper headlines screaming and, you know, all this disinformation about how uh, Biden is Satan spawn or whatever um, coming out. Uh, they seem like they've been better at holding their tongue, um, particularly when it comes to uh, doing the sort of things which, um, you know, could be construed as like actively trying to shape the way uh, politics would go out in terms of like, you know, mobilizing, uh, you know, Taiwanese American voters or what have you. No, and President Tsai is an extremely uh, thoughtful and cautious person. She uh, is, my sense, is very aware that everything she has has repercussions. And so this is not a situation where you have uh, the, the, you know, the head of state making clear there's a preference for one party over another. So the, the interesting thing uh that I think Taiwan and Israel do have in common is that they both still manage to be seen as bipartisan in the U.S. You still have Democrats who vote very strongly with Israel, even though uh, you have people like Bibi who overtly supports Republicans um, and appeals much more to a conservative Republican base than he bothers to with Democrats as much these days. And Taiwan, you know, Tsai Ing-wen, like Maggie said, uh, she's way too smart and practical to try to pull something like that. Um and, and, you know, this is maybe one of the biggest misunderstandings that a lot of, uh, you know, people see about Tsai Ing-wen. She is perhaps the most moderate, willing to uh, be safe and not put Taiwan in a risky situation type of president Taiwan could ever have. And she's not going to put Taiwan at unnecessary risk, uh, nor does she want to jeopardize or put the U.S.-Taiwan relationship at, an, at unnecessary risk. So doing something like overtly supporting one party or one politician is not something she would do. And I highly doubt that's something she would have anyone representing her in the U.S. do. You guys have this riff uh, that Western media spends way too much time thinking about Taiwan in the context of, you know, U.S.-China cross-strait relations type stuff. So I'm going to indulge you in that by spending the rest of the episode just talking about domestic Taiwanese politics. Um, first off, Lev, aside from, like, serious reasons to care about Taiwanese politics, like, what's fun about following it? Uh, you know, Taiwan, uh, at the end of the day, what, what I think people miss out on is, you know, obviously there's this giant existential question about, you know, you know who is Taiwan, where is Taiwan, uh, but, you know, during non-election years uh, and when uh, there is, uh, you know, peaceful days, people go about their everyday lives uh, and like every other functioning democracy in the world. Uh, How and many functioning democracies are there in the world now? No. <laughs> fewer and fewer, uh, depending on who you ask. Um, yeah, the, the how we measure uh, the status of, of, of democracies is going to be something that plagues political scientists forever after um, Trump. But... Uh, you know, there's there's so much that can be learned from from Taiwan, uh, specifically because of how it developed its democratic institutions, the type of democratic institutions it has, like the way that elections are held in Taiwan, uh, how it compares to other East Asian democracies like South Korea or Japan. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, as someone who studies uh, social movements, uh, protests, uh, and political parties, uh, you know, Taiwanese people are extremely politically active uh, and uh, unafraid to voice those opinions and concerns publicly. 
Um, and so for someone like me that's very interested in seeing how people participate in politics, uh, Taiwan is a really, really uh, wonderful case study um, that is rich with data and lots of people willing to tell me their thoughts and opinions about the cool. world. Let's start out with pork. Why is pork making political headlines? Yeah, rapto pork, which always sounds like some sort of evil villain in one of my kids' um, TV shows. Uh, yeah, so this uh, this is about uh, so the longstanding. We're talking decades. Issues about whether U.S. pork and beef is also an issue uh, should be allowed into Taiwan, and uh, in particular concerns about ractopamine. These are additives that are allowed in the United States and and generally not in Taiwan. But it's so much more than about the science. And I respect that people want to be cautious about what they are ingesting. Uh, but this is a lot about uh, local business, uh, local farmers, a lot about uh, finger pointing between the KMT and DPP. So I find it uh, personally very hard to figure out how much the resistance of people is because of the actual health concerns and how much there are political games that have been going on so long. And certainly even the KMT, they flip-flopped on their position depending on whether this was a uh, an issue that they thought they could uh, score some points in digging at Tsai Ing-wen or if they were in, in power. But um, more with respect to U.S.-Taiwan relations, uh, and I think it's really important to point out that right now Taiwan is, I think, the U.S.'s ninth long largest trading partner. It fluctuates uh, to a little bit. Uh, and uh, for Tsai Ing-wen to make this overture of saying that she is willing to relax the standards and willing to allow more imports was uh, was was a big sign, uh, and I think what we want to see is hopefully with the new USTR, Catherine Tai, that she will be uh, more interested than Lighthizer in looking to revamp and update the U.S.-Taiwan trade relationship. Uh, it's not hard to be more interested in doing that than Lighthizer because he didn't even give Taiwan the time of day. Um, but uh, you know that's that's one thing we're we're watching. You know, it's so it's so and, funny you know, because Lighthizer. He, he had these quotes being like, oh, God, like, I can't believe I'm spending this much time in Beijing. It's such a terrible city. Like, he should have just spent some time in Taipei. It's lovely there. The, the reason pork is, is uh, so controversial, though, is like there, there's two kind of big reasons. First, you know, uh, Taiwan has wanted an FTA with the U.S. for a long time. Uh, and agricultural trade has been the starting point, And the U.S. will not continue talks until agriculture is, is, is a deal. Uh, so, you know, in 2012, Ma, Ma Ying-jeou, the former president, uh, you know, pushed through Racto beef, which back then the DPP adamantly opposed for the same reasons that the KMT now opposes the DPP wanting Racto pork, which is, you know, kind of what Maggie means by, you know, depending on the time of day and the year and who's in power, people will either be for or against this, depending on political points. But Ma cannot get pork through. And in order to start FTA talks, uh, the U.S. wanted both beef and pork. So this, this pork deal is kind of the big barrier that Taiwan has been trying to get through in order to start having a productive discussion about some, you know, whether it's an FTA or just some sort of uh, bilateral trade deal with the U.S. Tsai is really kind of, you know, using a lot of her political capital on this move. Uh, so, so right now, she's very popular because of Taiwan's very good COVID response and people are generally happy with her administration. Um, and she's kind of, you know, gotten a lot of chips in her corner, and she's spending a lot of those chips on pork, uh, because Taiwanese take pork really seriously. Uh, and it's not just because of, you know, think about the health of our kids. Pork is one of the biggest industries in Taiwan. 
Uh, and by saying that we're going to start bringing in American pork, you're essentially saying we're going to create competition for domestic farmers when we don't really need domestic competition for our farmers. They're doing just fine as is. Um, but she has to in order to get this deal started. So she's having to sell this really kind of strange deal to people that they didn't really want but will need if they want to have a bigger trade deal with the U.S. Um, and unfortunately, the timing of it did not go nearly as smoothly as I'm sure it's I wished because um, – Tsai didn't. So there's been no kind of immediate reciprocity from the U.S. Like the U.S. hasn't suddenly given Taiwan any sort of deal yeah. back yet. Uh, it's more Tsai relaxed. This is allowing U.S. pork in, and people are asking, "Well, what did we get?" And she doesn't have anything to show yet. And this has made her a kind of easy. It, this has made the issue an easy target, uh, especially for the KMT, who's currently in opposition and really looking for anything they can to throw against Tsai. Because when when your government uh, prevents a pandemic from spreading, it's pretty hard to attack them for that, which is why the KMT has been <laughs> struggling to find things to critique Zion these days. But this pork thing, they are zeroing in on it and, and, and you know, taking it to the streets and protesting over pork and remobilizing everyone who voted for Hangoyu back in 2020. And I fully expect American pork. Uh, I, I, I know like it, it seems the, the idea of pork being such an important political issue might seem silly from the outside, but really it's not, it's, it's so much more than just, you know, pork. It's, it's about, you know, the future of Taiwan domestic markets, uh, you know, making uh, uh, deals that, you know, really help Taiwan in the long term and trying to show people that this is more of a, you know, long-term strategy. Um, and it's something that's going to stay relevant in Taiwanese politics at least through the midterm, if not longer. Sure. So you mentioned the KMT earlier. Let's come back to them. What are the sort of like potential paths that uh, that party, uh, the current opposition party, could go down in trying to rebrand and get themselves back more in the um, uh, in the electoral graces of the uh, Taiwanese uh, electorate? And where do you think uh, you know if if you were sitting in the uh, you know the the smoky back room, what would you be telling uh, them to do in this upcoming midterm? Yeah, the KMT is is looking for its next act, and it hasn't figured out what that is. So the last presidential election, their candidate, Han Guoyu, was not your typical KMT candidate. Right? He had uh, be, he had he was mayor of Kaohsiung, but when he was sent down to run for mayor of Kaohsiung, um, I don't know what do you think Vegas odds were at. He was, but it was really bad that he was. There hasn't been a KMT mayor of Kaohsiung, and the the expectation was like Trump winning the presidency in twenty sixteen. But but he did, and uh, and I you know shout out to Nathan Bado uh, at uh, Academia Sinica who's done some really good work on looking at the role of populism in Han Guoyu's rise first as mayor of, of Kaohsiung and then as the presidential candidate for the KMT. But then he also had a stellar loss. I mean he lost decidedly, and and we knew the results within a few hours, which was was spectacular. You know don't take for granted a a, a clean, fair, and swift election. But uh, so. One once that fell away, I think it emboldened some of the more uh, old school KMT people to say, look, that that wasn't the, the white knight you know, on the horse that was going to save the KMT. Uh, maybe we should listen more to the, the Ma and Joe era. But you also have a younger generation of KMT more in their 40s who are trying to uh, pull away from sort of the 92 consensus or so-called 92 consensus of um, that was the KM, 
CMT and the CCP uh, kind of agreeing to disagree, but at least that there is a a something called China. um, And they're realizing that's a a non-starter for a framework for most people here. Uh, And then you have um, some people in the KMT who are looking also um, as not your traditional KMT that I think um, the most likely person that I see coming up is is um, Ho Yi. So Ho Yi is currently the mayor of uh, new Taipei City, Xinbei Shi, which is right next to Taipei and was used to be part of the, the county and it was reorganized as a separate city. He's really interesting. He was a police officer during the martial law era, um, and then he switched over to politics. He's doing, by all accounts, a great job as far as being very popular in New Taipei. Um, and um, I think he's one that I'm watching, certainly, as we as we look forward to 2024. I think something that's really important to look back on when we look at the 2020 election, you know, like Maggie said, Hong Kong definitely lost, but it wasn't a sweeping defeat for the KMT as a whole. So I think there's two important numbers to look at. Uh, so Hong Kong got 5.5 million votes. Tsai Ing-wen got 8.2 million votes. Uh, so of course he lost. But if you compare that to the last election, uh, Zhu Lilun, when he ran against Tsai, only got three and a half million votes. So even though Han lost, he was able to mobilize two million more voters for the KMT. Uh, and then if you look at the party vote, so very quickly, when you vote in Taiwan, you vote three times. You vote for your president, you vote for your district representative, and then you vote for whichever party you like the most. It's a hybrid system that is kind of a mix between the U.S. and Germany. The KMT actually tied the DPP in the party vote. So both the DPP and the KMT got 33% of the total party vote. Now, this tells us that, you know, the you know, if you look at the news and headlines and if you look at the actual outcome of the election, you know, the, the DPP still won overwhelmingly when it came to district races. Uh, and the DPP is still the majority in the legislative UN. Uh, but what these two numbers tell me is that the KMT is most certainly hurting, but it's not gone. And when I look at the way that the KMT has been able to mobilize its base of support over Ractopork, uh, and I look at how even with a absolute losing candidate like Hong Wuyu, they were still able to turn out as much as they did. Uh, I don't think, you know, if, if they can find that winning candidate, I do not think that it is, you know, beyond the realm of possibility that the KMT can make a comeback in Taiwan. Uh, and I, I, you know, sometimes I think, you know, uh, because Tsai and the DPP are so popular now, we, we kind of very quickly write them off. But, you know, under the right circumstances, um, you know, there's still a chance. Uh, and so, you know, looking, you know, forward, you know, obviously Hoyoi, but, you know, you have other, you know, young potentials like the, 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 um, great, great grandson of Chiang Kai-shek, mm-hmm. uh, Jiang Wanan, who's, who is currently a legislator, who is, uh, the, the direct great grandson of Chiang Kai-shek, who I think is also being, uh, vetted as a potential, uh, future KMT leader. Are there any women on, on the bench for the KMT? Well, they tried, <laughs> they tried in in, in Kaohsiung. Uh, well, so you know, in twenty sixteen, uh, so the twenty sixteen presidential election, if if you remember, the KMT had a woman uh, candidate, uh, um, Hong Xiuzhu, who was so bad they actually withdrew her and put Julie Lun in her place at the last minute. Um, and you know, you know, there are uh, actually um, women in the KMT with leadership roles. Uh, they just do not currently lead any of the major factions. Uh, and, you know, one fun fact, you know, people always ask, are there any young KMT supporters? They exist. There's not many of them. Uh, but there's actually two uh, local Taipei city councillors under the age of 30 uh, who are both uh, women from the KMT. And just more generally, I, you know, because so often you see the, you know, Tsai Ing-wen, the first female president. And thankfully, now that we're you know five years into her being president, that's dropped away. But uh, it, it is 
complicated to be a woman in politics here. And uh, there's a there's a lot of misogyny. And some of that is thinly veiled. Some of it comes out just full force. And and so even though in many ways women have done you know, very well, and not only uh, Tsai Ing-wen, but you had Annette Liu as vice president under Chen Shui-bian, uh, there is it's it's still it's still difficult. So those those issues have uh, have not been uh, resolved. And you see the number that like you know a, a large percentage of Taiwanese politicians are women, and Taiwan brags about that, which they should because it's a good thing. Uh, but that's also legally mandated that parties have X percentage women on their candidate lists. And certain percentages of those who run have to be uh, of uh, uh, fair gender representation. You know what so, those numbers? Um, it's good that it's built in the system, but building it into the system doesn't make misogyny go away. Eighteen-year-old voter referendum. What are the dynamics behind that? So this is one of those issues that uh, seemingly every political party is in favor of, uh, which is good because it seems like the KMT has finally figured out they need young voters, uh, and you know, being supportive of lowering, lowering the age to eighteen. Might seem like a good idea. Unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be any 18-year-olds voting for the KMT because young people, especially under the age of 40, overwhelmingly do not support the KMT. Uh, in fact, most people under the age of 40 have nothing good to say about the KMT um, and overwhelming, overwhelmingly support either the DPP or a third party. And it's really, the you know, for, as someone who's, I, I study third parties in Taiwan, so that's really my, my main interest. Uh, you know, third parties have a uh, particular uh, small advantage in Taiwan relative to, say, like the U.S. because of that party vote. If, if if this was America, if there's a Democrat and a Republican running and you don't like either of them and you really like the Green Party, but there's no way that, you know, the Green Party candidate's ever going to win in your district, uh, you can write in Green Party on your party vote and then, you know, they have a chance at getting some representation. Uh, and that's really been the secret behind third party success in Taiwan. Uh, and young people who overwhelmingly support third parties more than uh, older voters, if there's essentially uh, two additional cohorts joining in the voting population, uh, that's going to give third parties an even uh, bigger base of support um, to draw from. And same with the DVP. The DVP has become incredibly popular among younger uh, voters again. You know, they were, they were always popular, but during, you know, the Sunflower Movement to uh, 2016, uh, you know, there, there was a bit of a dip where young voters would prefer third parties over the DPP. And currently the DPP has successfully kind of managed to um, uh, be cool and young and hip again. And they've really gotten a lot of, uh, in, 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 in a way that the KMT just absolutely cannot figure out, the DPP has actually uh, appealed to young voters in a really, really productive way that's really brought in a lot of support back. The 18-year-old uh, uh, voting change is really just going to open up um, you know, more cohorts of voters that these parties are going to be fighting over. Uh, and we know currently that it's going to be advantage to third parties and the DPP. Um, so it's really a matter of uh, will will the DPP and third parties really just reap all the benefits or will the KMT be able to figure some way to appeal to the kids? Uh, Lev, do you want to give us a bit of a tour of the third party universe? Which are the um, uh, which are the uh, ones that you find most interesting? Going back to that number that I said, you know, in 2020, uh, 30%, 33% went to the DPP, 33% of the party vote went to the KMT, 33% of the vote went to third parties. Uh, so, you know, third parties are not something to be, you know, very quickly written off in Taiwan because they actually, they actually have seats uh, and they actually can, can uh, um, make, a, make a pretty big difference uh, in elections here. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's currently uh, three third parties that have representation. Um, the first is uh, called the Taiwan People Party, Taiwan People's Party, uh, uh, Taiwan Min Zhongdang. Uh, it is started by the Mayor Ke Wenzhe, um, who was originally uh, a independent and then later started his own political party. 
they currently have, uh, I believe, eleven legislatures uh, in in the legislative union. But their and but their momentum seems to not be growing. Oh sure, like like, yeah. like there's something to be said. All, currently, all all three represented uh, small parties in the in the Li Fa Yuan do not have good momentum right now. A lot of their support is going either back to the DPP or to the KMT. Um, but uh, you know, but Koenja's party is not a particularly green party. It, it actually is. I would describe Koenja's party as more light blue, uh, in the sense where they're not pro-China in the unabashed way that the KMT often is, uh, but they're far more uh, sympathetic to the idea of creating relations with China in a way that uh, green voters are not. So Koenja's infamous line, he says, Liang An Yi Jia Qin, which got him in a lot of hot water with green voters because that's, you know, two sides of the straight one family is not something that a lot of people who are pro-Taiwan really sympathize with. And actually their color is teal. So if you're going to be somewhere between the green and blue, I guess they, yeah, got out their paints and mixed them up yeah so so the other uh party currently in is is called the new power party and they're a party that formed out of the sunflower movement uh after 20 after the uh, 2014's um social um protest the the sunflower movement um and the new power party had representation uh in 2016 they did very well in their first election and they did just as well in their second election uh they currently have uh three people in office right now uh and, uh, you know, they, they're, a, they're a directly pro-independence party. Uh, they say directly, we support Taiwanese independence. Uh, they're highly critical of relations with China, highly critical of the PRC. And they're also very highly critical of the DPP, uh, which gets them in a lot of hot water with, with uh, pro-Taiwan voters. Um, because, and this is really the, the tough balance that third parties have to, have to kind of uh, mark themselves as, is because the DPP is such an important institution for pro-Taiwan voters. You know, they're the, the DPP is the very first uh, opposition party in Taiwan, started by social activists, you know, in opposition to the KMT's brutal authoritarian uh, martial law era. And uh, the DPP holds special meaning for a lot of pro-Taiwan voters. But third part, but, but there are people that are not happy with the DPP and they want other choices. Um, and so that's where, why you often have people like the New Power Party coming out. Uh, but unfortunately, the New Power Party has to do a very complicated balancing act of both criticizing the DPP in a way that makes the NPP stand out while not being overly critical of the DPP and isolating a lot of green voters. So finally, the third party that's that the third third party is called the Taiwan State Building Party. And they only have one person uh, who won in an absolute mind-blowing defeat. He won in a Taizong in a very, very deep blue district. I assumed he was going to lose. I didn't even give him the time of day. Because uh, he ran in, in perhaps like the most obvious going to lose district, uh, and he won in places when when other candidates I had uh, uh, odds on winning uh, all lost. He was the one that that out of nowhere won. Um, now the Taiwan State Building Party is is actually a pretty old uh, organization. They've just changed their name like four or five times. Um, but uh, as a political party, they're they've, they they're they're relatively new on the scene. Um, they also are. Uh, overtly uh, pro-Taiwan independence, uh, but they're much more closely aligned with the DPP in terms of willing to work with the DPP than the NPP are. And even with the the state building, the Ji Jindang, that I remember uh, last year when I was here uh, with a group t- around the election, and we we met with representative just to get a better sense of, you know, how did they identify themselves? What made them different? Why weren't they just part of the DPP? And in my sense, there was a at least the person we spoke with quite a bit of pragmatism that you know we're not saying that 
we think tomorrow that Taiwan is going to declare sovereignty under the name Taiwan. But, you know, of course, this place is functionally independent right now. It's a question of under what name. Um, but they said we want that to be part of the conversation. We don't want the status quo uh, moderate view and that's under Tsai to make it so we don't have that voice of the people who at least want to keep this as as a viable part of what's being discussed. And that's really an important point. These third parties that are overtly pro-independence, they see the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen as pro-status quo, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but a lot of the way that, you know, a, a lot of China watchers see the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen as this, you know, crazy pro-independence woman who's trying to provoke China, uh, that's just not true. Uh, Tsai's uh, actually criticized often by those uh, who are deeper green for not being pro-independence enough and that the DPP is not pro-independence enough. Uh, and that Tsai is actually very pragmatic when it comes to uh, how she refers to Taiwan, Taiwan's future, Taiwan's goals. Um, you know, she, she says in almost all of her speeches where she has to uh, speak on to where Taiwan fits internationally as the Republic of China. Uh, off, sometimes she says Republic of China, Taiwan. Sometimes she just says Republic of China. Um, but she is she is not the rabble rouser that uh, she often gets portrayed as. So, um, what are the, some of, what are some of the social issues you guys are are following? One of the issues that, uh, again, it feels like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago that Taiwan legalized same-sex marriage. And that was really interesting because, uh, at least for me, I'm a lawyer, so I think courts are important. And this was a time that the constitutional court was very important because the constitutional court had said, government, you must legalize same-sex marriage. It's a constitutional issue. And unlike the United States, where the Supreme Court says it and it has to happen then, one mechanism the court has here is to give a runway, to say, we're giving you here, you know, a year or two to, to figure it out. And if not, there's going to be a default that people are going to have to be able to marry. And so then you had these really complex machinations between the executive branch and the legislature. And finally, a law was passed. Interestingly, it didn't say flat out same-sex marriage. It had this Article Three relationship. They tried to couch it in more palatable language because the DPP, even though it has progressive in its name, actually has a lot of older, con traditionally more conservative values, people in its midst who were not comfortable with same-sex marriage. But it did pass, and we've since seen um, an, a more overt embracing. There's always been uh, a big gay pride parade. It was huge this year, especially given that other countries couldn't have that kind of gathering. And now we're seeing moves to expand who can engage in same-sex marriage because it was limited as far as if someone was not Taiwanese, um, whether that was able to happen. And we're starting to see legal movement to make it so even if one of the people is not Taiwanese, there's some limits that that's open. I'm watching family building um, as far as being able to adopt outside the relationship um, and other um, reproductive technologies that have not been available necessarily easily to single women. Um, but also just generally watching how Hong Kong is... Uh, going so it's so sad you know day by day we look at the civil and political rights just being um, demolished by Beijing and uh, and so that being here in Taiwan especially given the close ties um, amongst and Lev can speak more to this between Hong Kong and Taiwan uh, makes me all the more appreciate the ability to assemble to associate free expression uh, never take any of these fundamental human rights for granted sure. Yeah. So, so Hong Kong became a major issue uh, in Taiwan, of course, uh, like it became in, in many parts of the world uh, once the protests broke out starting in 2019. Um, 
And, you know, it most certainly was an important factor for the 2020 election. Not the only factor uh, is, is, is a hill that I've died on because a lot of people uh, very quickly try to say that size massive victory was because of Hong Kong. And I, I disagree with that. Um, but it most certainly mattered. Uh, and, you know, Hong Kong became a part of the conversation in Taiwan in a way that it has not before. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, there have been multiple solidarity rallies. Uh, there's a lot of uh, public support and saying, like, you know, Taiwan stands with Hong Kong. Uh, and uh, Taiwan even went so far as to open a humanitarian office to help Hong Kongers. Um, but, you know, when you look a little bit deeper into the policy behind, you know, what's really being helped here, you find that, you know, even though they opened this really cool sounding office that seems to signal this great sense of solidarity, uh, the office is a little bit uh, unknown. Like, we don't really know how many people are able to utilize it. Uh, and the language that, you know, some of these like pro Hong Kong policies uh, use is like, you know, if, if we absolutely welcome Hong Kongers who are looking to come to Taiwan, especially if they're wealthy and can invest uh, and we'll give special tax breaks to them. And if, you know, they have uh, high, uh, you know, high tech skills, we'll help them find employment. And this is all wonderful and nice. But, you know, the, the concern was, you know, people who really needed to get to, ta to Taiwan were those who are, you know, young protesters who uh, you know, face political uh, persecution. And a lot of the policies uh, that Taiwan was putting out while in support of Hong Kong were not really addressing, you know, how are we, how is Taiwan going to help those most in need? Uh, and, you know, we hear stories here and there about, you know, uh, Hong Kongers being smuggled in by boat. Um, you know, there is a story uh, over the summer about five uh, Hong Kongers who, who were smuggled here. And we just recently learned that they've been relocated to the U.S., uh, but more recently, there's a story of the 12 Hong Kongers who tried to flee to Taiwan by boat and were caught by the Coast Guard. Uh, and, you know, really, you know, it, it's it's they're, they're now held in uh, uh, in China. Um, and, you know, we have not really heard clear details about their situation. Caught by the Chinese Coast Guard. Grim. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, the, the reason that this is upsetting to me, uh, you know, is at least it, it, Taiwan has, has signaled that uh, if you are a... Uh, protester or someone who fears political persecution, Taiwan is not going to directly help you. But if you can get to Taiwan, we'll help you under the radar. Now, that might seem fine, but that really creates a really dangerous incentive structure in which you're kind of signaling that young Hong Kongers who were protesters who have already put themselves at immense risk ought to put themselves at even further risk uh, just to get to potentially maybe get to I Taiwan mean, and potentially. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard, um, though, Lev. Like, what are they going to do? Are they going to like, like have bring submarines and like have people sneak onto them? I mean, it's it's uh, it's a question well, that doesn't have they a good could write answer, them visas. Right? Well, 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 so the example is there's this case of Tony Chung. So Tony Chung actually tried to apply through. So Tony Chung is a protester who was arrested and and uh, and uh, um uh, prosecuted. Um, and, and, you know, he applied through the, uh, Hong Kong humanitarian aid office, uh, and was rejected. Uh, and that's upsetting yeah. because now he's in jail. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, so, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's cases like that where, uh, you know, and some people point to saying Tsai can't go too far. She can't, you know, if she starts bringing Hong Kong protesters over, that's, that's going to really upset Beijing. Um, and maybe, but I, you know, given, you know, that they're willing to bring Hong Kongers over and by other means, I don't know if I necessarily agree or buy that argument. Um, it really seems to me more that there's very little public demand, uh, at least on the Taiwan side, that people don't seem the need to pressure uh, Tsai or the DPP into bringing more Hong Kongers over here. It just is, it, it's one of those things where 
uh, I think overwhelmingly people here will say that they support Hong Kong and support the protests. Um, but whether or not they really are invested in trying to help bring Hong Kongers to Taiwan, I think is a different yeah, issue. I mean, it's, it's so hard because like, okay, fine. They give that guy the visa and they'll, the, the, the police will take him off the plane. Um, so it's, it's, it's not like, even if Tsai does the most aggressive version of this, um, those people will have an easier time of, you know, an easier time getting away from the, um, sort of clutches of the, of the, of the Hong Kong police, because, you know, we've, we've, you know, I can, I can certainly see a way in this, in which this develops and, and, and where they sort of have someone standing outside. I'm sure they already do have someone standing outside of wherever you get your visa, your, your, your Taiwan visa in Hong Kong and like writing, writing those folks names down and accelerating whatever sort of pseudo judicial process is going on to, um, to, to, to bring cases against these folks. So I don't know. I mean, it's certainly a bummer that there isn't more enthusiasm, it seems for this within the, the Taiwanese electorate, but um, I don't think Tsai sort of rhetorically or even on a statutory level, like opening the, the, the doors more broadly would really make all that much difference in that many people's lives, sadly. I don't know. What do you, what's your take, Maggie? I, I feel like Tsai's job involves a lot of decisions with not great choices. Uh, you know, she's, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely difficult thing to be president of Republic of China, parentheses, Taiwan, uh, when you have, uh, you do have this existential threat, and that's an overused phrase, but that is exactly what Taiwan faces. And having the deterioration of, of rights and, and the political situation in Hong Kong, I think it's just made that all the more apparent. Because for years, there's been a discussion here about how there is a lack of a refugee law. And uh, that discussion in the past, is, it's partially about Hong Kong, but just more generally, you know, what do you do when there are people um, who are seeking to flee someplace because they're being persecuted. And there are um, concerns here about having too much in the way of immigration, though certainly there's a lot of people here temporarily, particularly from Southeast Asia, who are working a lot of times with elder care um, and you know big issues as far as their labor rights and whether they are adequately protected. So it's bigger than just about people coming from Hong Kong. But the layer two, that there is a, a law that has to do with relations with Hong Kong and Macau, because that's thrown in. And there is an article in there which talks about providing assistance. But because of the um, unusual status of, between Hong Kong and Taiwan, it's certainly not state to state relations, that that adds another layer of complex complexity to an issue about refugees, which is already politically fraught. There's no transition, but we're going to do one more beat about music. Um, uh, Lev uh, and Maggie, what have you guys been listening to recently uh, in terms of Taiwanese artists? I've been following Taiwan's music scene for, for a while, um, and I think there's just a totally uh, unappreciated, untapped market for great talent um, coming out of Taiwan, uh, and there's there's so much good music here. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the really cool things about being here right now is that this is like the one place in the world where you can still go to music festivals, uh, which, you know, not to rub salt in the wound, but... Uh, Rub it I, in. I, 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 I'm going to... Uh, I'll get closer to the mic. Two music festivals in the next month. Um, because I can, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole range. Maggie just, uh, brought up Abao, who's this great, uh, Paiwanese, uh, indigenous singer. So, so Paiwanzu, uh, and, uh, she's really great because she just won, uh, like she, she swept like almost every award, uh, at Taiwan's music awards this year, which is really cool because one, she's an indigenous singer Two, she sings in Paiwanese, 
and she had this really great quote in an interview that I really loved where, uh, so, so, uh, the song, uh, um, Despacito that was really popular all over the world for, for a long time, which is in Spanish. Uh, and I don't speak Spanish and I'm fairly certain a lot of people who really love that song also don't speak Spanish and don't really understand it. Uh, and Abau referred to her music, uh, in the same way that, uh, she hopes people, uh, appreciate Despacito or have appreciated Despacito. She hopes that people can listen to her music and appreciate it in the same way, even if they don't understand what she's saying, uh, that they can still, um, you know, feel something towards the music in a similar way. And she'll mix several languages in a single song. And, uh, and one thing we haven't talked about is that Taiwan has a, a significant indigenous population on a number of different uh, groups, different languages. And in addition to dealing with its authoritarian martial law past and transitional justice that is ongoing uh, to address that time, there's also ongoing issues about addressing how the indigenous populations uh, have been uh, harmed uh, by you know the KMT under martial law, uh, by the Japanese colonial rule, and even more recently since uh, democratization. Uh, so especially with all the sad and um, just I mean heart rending news coming out of, of Xinjiang and other places, it's it's also nice to see a place where there's uh, some grappling with even if a lot of work left to do uh, with respect to the indigenous groups. And, and, you know, for, for political science nerds, you know, it's really interesting to see uh, how votes play out within Taiwan's indigenous groups because they overwhelmingly support the KMT when it comes to the polls, um, which goes against what a lot of people would, would think. Uh, you know, why, why would, uh, you know, indigenous groups that have been historically marginalized and oppressed still vote for uh, the KMT, who many people here, you know, still view as, you know, the former colonizer of Taiwan? Uh, and, you know, there's a, there's a long explanation and, you know, there's there's a history of, you know, fraught relations between um, the DPP and indigenous groups as well. Um, but you're starting to see a new change where younger indigenous voters are starting to vote green and support the DPP while you still have most older voters supporting the KMT. So I've had a few conversations with like tr- young college age trying to talk listeners in the past year about like what they should do with their, you know, COVID lives. Um, and I've been telling everyone to just go to Taiwan. Uh, what is the status um, in terms of like folks being able to show up for, for programs and, and whatnot uh, as of uh, January 28th, 2021? I am um, delighted to say that both Lev and I, uh, we were both Fulbrighters here in Taiwan. Fulbright program is very large here. It has everywhere from uh, people who have just graduated from undergrad and are coming over as ETAs, English uh, teaching assistants and working at schools, elementary schools throughout Taiwan, to the the senior scholars, um, you know, like senior, we're, we're senior, but not necessarily old. Uh, and, uh, and so I really recommend looking at Fulbright. And we actually have more people coming than we expected uh, because the Trump administration shut down Fulbright Hong Kong and China uh, programs, which I think was the stupidest decision. I hope Biden will be able to move that um, back in um, the other direction soon. So Fulbright's great. Um, There's a lot of other language programs. Uh, people are still coming over. As I said, some Fulbrighters are, I think, in quarantine right now. And and more generally, even as hopefully we pull out of the worst of the pandemic, uh, Taiwan is a fantastic place for language learning. And it had, um, in the 90s, there was such a shift, and even starting in the 80s, towards learning uh, Chinese in in, the, in China. And and I went to Beijing. And, and, and love, you never actually studied in China, did you? No, I, did. I lived in China for two and a half years. Oh, of course, years. you were, yeah, you were did, at Hopkins Beijing. But, but your initial language study was here, though. Yeah, no. So I started. I I came to Taiwan first. 
Which is for your for you, for you youngins that no, was unusual. It's, it's very unusual. Most yeah, most people go to China. But we're going to see, I think, more and more of a shift coming back here because of um, not not just health and pollution and other kind of quality of life, but uh, the freedom, um, academic freedom, is uh, is is such a such a wonderful thing to have. And you realize uh, how it has been squeezed increasingly. Um, I love Star Wars. It's the trash compactor is getting smaller and smaller as far as academic freedom. And Hopkins mm-hmm. Nanjing, where we both went, I think is one of the a few libraries where it's still whatever books they want, at least last I checked. So um, I'd say, too, that universities in the U.S. should be increasingly looking to send more students yeah. here. A little con- contrarian take. Um, I don't necessarily see, having having been in a, having done a graduate level program in China, not having uh, academic freedom, um, I don't think it impacted me all that much. Um, first off, like, the paper you write in grad school or, you know, for your semester abroad is not going to change the world. Um, and, you know, you can always just read the books. You have a VPN. You can do the research. And it, you are unlikely to you – know, very unlikely to get in trouble as a young person if all you're doing is reading stuff online. Um, you know, there's something very different – That there's something very different from – uh, you know, necessarily like clearly there are certain topics that if you wanted to do active research on, you could get yourself in trouble by. Um, but I guess I'm saying like as a as a student, um, if you're you know spending a, 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 a chunk of time on the mainland, um, the fact that your professors aren't going to assign you certain books or, you know, won't let you write about certain topics or, um, you know, the library might not have, uh, you know, tombstone or whatever in it. Uh, I don't think it has like as big a lasting effect as necessarily, um, you know, maybe if you're a more established academic and like all of a sudden you're, 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 you know, you're, you have to sort of like live in a Chinese academic system. I think that's where you see a major impact. I don't know. I mean, this is, this is a half, a half. I, I think thought. it matters. Maybe because I'm a professor and I'd like to think that who's teaching you matters and what they can say. Um, but I think the, the, the conversations first in the classroom are, are, are going to be different. And, and also everything's fine until it's not. I was yeah. in Beijing when the, the Canadians, Michael Covering and Spaver, were taken in and there was a collective sucking in of air, kind of like, whoa, this is, this is game changing. So I don't want to um, assume, uh, especially given um, what we've seen in, in Hong Kong and, and uh, that academic freedom is the same as even if it was a couple years ago uh, in China. And um, and also the opportunities outside of the classroom. I was just at a conference here that was put together by a group of defense lawyers. And it was all about, you know, what are the obligations to get uh, evidence, give it to the to the government, and what do we require the government to give us? And, um, you know, Lev's going to protests all the time. So the, the learning outside the classroom, too. So yeah. I, And you don't have to have it one or the other. I mean, ideally, people would go both places and be comfortable in seeing and making their own decisions about what those um, what, the, what those two countries yeah, are. I mean, like. I mean, shout out to the Hopkins Nanjing Center. But you know, for me, it was it wasn't just about reading the books. Like, if if you're only going to grad school to read books, then you're you're wasting your money. Um, for me, you know, and I think for a lot of people, it's about the experience and the conversations you have with people. And part of the reason academic freedom was very special at Hopkins Nanjing is because it kind of guaranteed both, you know, Chinese uh, student, you know, my Chinese student colleagues and the other international students, a safe space where we know we can talk about topics without having to have, you know, a, a fear of, you know, potential 
um, pushback even from the administration. So yeah, and you know, I think you're, I think, I think Maggie like studying protests and and you know living in a democracy and reading polls um and seeing like different news outlets that like disagree with each other is remarkable um you know the first time i went to taiwan i remember walking down the street and seeing banners in in mandarin of people saying like you know screw the government and was kind of blown away uh because it's because it's something that i hadn't been exposed to in my first um you know year and a half engaging with engaging with the language so um i agree uh it's like it's a different country. Yeah, it's here. a different yeah. It's a different country. Um, but I, I I will say that like I think if you want to be someone who understands mainland China, it is important to go to mainland China. Um, even if uh, uh you know, even if you sort of you have to have to you know clip clip your wings a little bit. Um, you know, folks who've listened to this podcast for a while will probably notice that the topics I have started to cover uh, after I, I realized I wasn't going back anytime soon have shifted. And I don't even know if I would be having this conversation with you guys if I was, um, uh, you know, if I was still living in Beijing. So it's... And ideally, you have people who are familiar with both. And this is one thing I'm, I'm looking to see with the Biden administration is that, understandably, people who have their dominant experience being studying, living in, understanding China, um, they're going to see Taiwan differently than people who have significant in-country experience here. And, uh, and, and so you want to have a mix uh, of people on those experiences so they can look at the, the issues from, from different viewpoints. And, you know, it's really wonderful, uh, you know, one more shout out to Fulbright that, you know, even though Taiwan is an imperfect place to do Chinese research, uh, it is better than than not. So, you know, I have uh, very dear friends who were supposed to go to Fulbright China uh, this year, PhD students who had their entire PhD academic careers planned out and then thoroughly thrown in their faces by the Trump administration. Uh, you know, getting Fulbright as a PhD uh, student is, is a big deal, um, and we, we don't get many things to celebrate, but that's certainly something to celebrate. Uh, so getting that pulled out from underneath your feet really sucks. Uh, and the fact that Taiwan Fulbright made special effort to uh, accommodate uh, China PhDs who wanted to come to Taiwan instead, um, you know, I think that really puts uh, a new uh, spin on just what can be done uh, if you're an academic trying to do some sort of research in China or Taiwan. Love and Maggie, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Yay, Fulbright. Yay, Fulbright. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. They, they pay us to say that, but no, they don't. <laughs>
是哪怕春天暖，夜晚。